The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Hello again, and welcome to the 13th episode of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, 3rd of June, and in this podcast, we'll find out more about the latest updates on the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, the halt to Russian oil imports into Europe, Denmark joining the European Common Security and Defense Policy, and Croatia possibly adopting the euro next year. And as always, we will present you with the best editorials and opinion pieces on the debate over the EU's role in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and the COVID-19 pandemic and the new monkeypox. And now let's dive right into the most important news of the week. Today's first update is on the progress of the war in Ukraine. According to UNHCR data, since the conflict began last 24th of February, the number of refugees who have fled Ukraine has risen to six and a half million. In addition, a French journalist from the BFMTV television channel was reportedly killed during clashes in the eastern part of the country. This is the eighth journalist killed since the beginning of the war. We'll stay on this topic, but now let's talk about sanctions against Russia. This week, the European Commission decided to stop Russian oil imports. The ban will be put into action in six months. The measure, however, covers only oil imports by ship, not by pipeline. Imports by ship represent 70% of all Russian oil exports. The possibility of continuing to import oil by pipeline was one of the demands of Hungarian Prime Minister Orban, who said it would be more difficult for his country, which lacks a naval port, to break away from Russian supplies within the time frame decided by the Commission. Also on the subject of energy imports from Russia, Moscow has halted gas exports to several European energy companies. Gazprom, Russia's state-owned gas export enterprise, has turned off the taps to Gazterra, a Dutch energy company. In addition to the Netherlands, the disruptions also affected other energy companies in Denmark and Germany, as they refused to pay for gas in rubles. The Netherlands, Germany and Denmark thus joined Bulgaria, Poland and Finland, other countries that have refused to pay for Russian gas in rubles. We remain in Northern Europe, but now move to Denmark which has joined the European Union's common security and defense policy. This week, Danish citizens were asked to vote in a referendum whether or not to join the EU's common security and defense policy. The votes cast in favor of membership were 67% of the total, compared to 33% of those against the decision. Denmark was the only member of the Union that had not yet joined the common defense policy from which it had been exempted in another internal referendum in 1993. Participation in the common defense policy will allow Denmark to take part in joint military operations within the EU. Still on the subject of European integration, Croatia could be the next country to adopt the euro. Croatia could join the Eurozone as early as January 2023 if the decision is approved by the Eurogroup and the EU Council. Of the seven member states under consideration, Bulgaria, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Romania and Sweden, Croatia is the only one to meet all the necessary criteria for membership. These include compatibility of national legislation with the independence of the European Central Bank, price stability and inflation similar to the Eurozone, fiscal stability with deficits not exceeding 3% of GDP, 
and exchange rate stability. For the last piece of news of the day, we move eastward to Poland. The European Commission has given the green light to Poland's recovery plan, unlocking a total of 35.4 billion euros, partly in grants and partly in low-interest loans. The Commission's approval of the plan has been stalled for more than a year because of a Polish law authorizing the Supreme Court's disciplinary chamber to punish magistrates suspected of engaging in political activity. Potential sanctions for judges include fines, salary reductions and permanent suspension. To overcome the impasse, Warsaw partly modified the reform, creating a chamber of professional responsibility instead. Nonetheless, according to Lustitia, Poland's largest association of judges, this change is merely cosmetic and will not prevent the Polish executive from exercising control over judges, thus further undermining their independence. The first series of today's comments focus on the question of what role Europe should play in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. We begin with Italy and the newspaper Corriere della Sera. For journalist Wolfgang Moncho, diplomacy has always been the only solution to conflicts between states. Europeans are right to call for diplomacy, writes the journalist, but they are wrong in failing to define a concrete war objective. For Moncho, there are two viable paths, support Ukraine militarily and economically, or let diplomacy speak, but provide the two sides with incentives to sit at the negotiating table. In Russia's case, this could be the lifting of all sanctions, while for Ukraine, reconstruction aid and a facilitated path to EU membership. At the moment, the second option seems to be prevailing. Considering the current state of affairs, it does not seem the worst prospect. In conclusion, Mouchot writes, it's time to deploy our most effective weapons, namely diplomacy. For the next editorial, let us move eastward and onto the pages of the Spanish newspaper El País. Journalist Mariam Martinez Bascunian explains how Europe must seek its own role, being geographically between the United States and the Atlantic Alliance on one side and Putin's Russia on the other. Until now, the EU has followed the US strategy, where there is the dream of transforming the EU into a strategically sovereign global force, competing with both rising China and the declining United States. The conflict has brought Europe closer to NATO, and this could interfere with Europe's desire for its own more independent role. Will the militarization of the continent under the Atlantic Alliance command leave room for strategic autonomy? Wonders Martinez Bascunian. Beyond support for Ukraine, what is the US vision for a sustainable security order in Europe? She writes in conclusion. If the war goes on with no end in sight, it would be like having an Afghanistan on our doorstep. For the last comment of the day on this topic, let us cross the sea and go to the pages of the British newspaper, The Times. For the editorial staff of the British newspaper, it would be wrong to push Ukraine to surrender Crimea in exchange for an end to the conflict. An idea that was also proposed at the Davos summit by former US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, to which the British journalists, however, reply, quoting Kissinger himself, when one great power tips the balance of forces decisively in a local conflict through its military intervention and meets no resistance, an ominous precedent is set. That is why the journalist writes, Western governments need to maintain cohesion in their support for Ukraine and explain to voters the associated costs, such as high energy prices, are unavoidable. 
to pursue the cause of peace and freedom, the editors conclude Kiev must be assured the means to defend itself and economic support. Surrendering Crimea would be a mistake because bullies and aggressors are not satisfied with limited gains. Today's second series of comments address the COVID-19 pandemic and the new monkeypox. The first commentary on the topic comes from German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. Columnist Christina Berndt starts with a warning from Robert Koch, Institute President Lothar Wheeler, to explain how politics should act to avoid a new wave of infections this fall. If the number of infections increases again after the summer, Berndt explains, then a legal framework will be needed to combat the pandemic. Measures now no longer in effect, such as the requirement to wear a mask, could be reinstated. Experts agree that the virus will return, but it is not known with what impact, writes a German journalist. The virus has not disappeared. We must not forget that. And therefore, policymakers must prepare for the possibility of a new, unpleasant wave of infections. We now know a great deal about the virus, how to defend ourselves and how to track contagions. But Bart argues, in conclusion, we must always be ready to resort to new scientific discoveries. For the next commentary, we cross the German border and go to France, to the newspaper Les Secos. Journalist Cécile Philip explains why the so-called long COVID is also an economic problem. According to some studies, Philip writes, between 10 and 30% of people who have contracted the virus still have symptoms even three months after infection. There are more than 200 symptoms associated with long COVID. The most common symptoms are pulmonary, cardiovascular, and neurological in kind. In its report on workplace absenteeism, the Malakoff Humanis Company pointed out that COVID-related work stoppages increased significantly in 2021. While absences from work due to the virus were 6% in 2020, they doubled to 12% in 2021. In the first quarter of 2022, daily allowances paid by health insurance increased by 51% compared to 2019, she states. Thus, COVID also has a negative impact in economic terms and with regards to productivity. In conclusion, this is something to take into account in the cost-benefit analysis of investments, such as ventilation, so as to limit the human and financial costs associated with the virus. Today's final editorial, however, takes us across the ocean to the United States on the pages of the New York Times. In their article, experts in infectious disease prevention, James Krellenstein, Joseph Osmundson, and Keletso Makofane explain what we can learn from COVID and HIV to prevent the new monkeypox from spreading. Recalling the initial pandemic mismanagement by the US government, the columnists point out that the circulation of correct information is crucial. We can't help people if we don't let them know what they're up against. It is important for everyone to do their part with testing and contact tracing because, as we learn from COVID-19, epidemics are unpredictable and human health is globally connected. But we can also learn from the spread of HIV, which is transmitted through similar social networks to the ones that foster the transmission of the monkeypox. In conclusion, although there is no public health emergency yet, we need to act now and carefully to ensure that we won't be dealing with another pandemic this summer and fall. We are at the end of our 13th episode of the podcast, The Window on the World. We will keep you updated on European and international issues next week. 
Research and writing for this episode was done by Daniel Rutza. And behind the mic, it's me, your host, Gail Rago. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, take care and goodbye. <laughs>